Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, the politics of petrol. Have you been uh, to the petrol station recently? You filled up your car and discovered prices have really gone up over the last few months. We've actually hit an almost eight-year high. We'll examine why they've gone up, what the impact is on drivers, but also, is it necessarily a bad thing? Might it encourage us to switch to greener forms of getting about. That's our big thing in a moment. But first, as our columnist panel, it's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Danny Finkelstein and David Iwanovich. But anyway, it's nice to have you with us, and we've got off on the usual, uh, in the usual way uh, by squabbling about even your introduction. So let's talk about uh, Boris Johnson's announcement last night, lifting of all restrictions, and we appear to be entering a new culture war based entirely on whether or not you're going to wear a mask. Who is going to win this war, do you think, Danny? Danny Fickelstein and David Wanovich there. Well, this morning I noticed that Wright said Fred said that he wouldn't Wednesday, work with me if I wore a mask, which is complexity to my decision and to all of ours. Um, so I, I think that uh, people will not wear a mask in quite the quantities that Twitter anticipates that they will. I mean, even when it was effectively compulsory on the tubes... M- a really quite large proportion of people didn't wear it. I think when the tube is very packed, people will wear it, even though we know that really it's for other people, they'll wear it partly for themselves um, and they'll feel they catch less colds um, doing it. So I think there will remain a reasonable amount of mask wearing, but it will be by no means universal. I think the preponderance of people and places will not wear masks. Uh, what do you think, David? And also, I'm just quite intrigued about how it's become the new, well, at least on social media. I suspect in the real world, this is not the case. But at least on social media, how, <laughs> it does seem to have become the new Brexit as to whether or not you are a, uh, a freedom-loving non-mask wearer or, you know, a, um, a sort of virtuous signalling. It's the other people I really care about, which is why we're wearing mine. Uh, is it, is it, maybe it's not a great surprise that everything now becomes a, a cultural war. Well, I was I was I was listening to a radio program which which gave a synopsis of a Daily Mail column which has gone out today saying there's going to be civil war between mask wearers and non-mask wearers, and apparently what's going to happen is we're going to batter each other on the tube and on the buses. We're actually going to come to kind of significant blows in the shops and so on because non-mask wearers will feel reproached by mask wearers and will attack them and mask wearers will feel threatened by non-mask wearers and attack them. And though there may be one or two instances of this which will instantly be uploaded to social media, my firm prediction is that none of that will happen whatsoever. Um... Uh, by and large, as far as I can see from most of the polling evidence, people take a fairly sensible attitude towards this, which is where it's very crowded and you're very indoors, it's quite a good idea for as many people as possible to continue wearing masks for the time being. And I'd add to that, I probably, I mean, I do remember interviewing a virologist about 20 years ago about 
15 years ago for a, a book he'd written. Um, and he said to me, I said to him, you know, that thing that um, mostly uh, Chinese uh, and uh, uh, people seem to do, which is they wear mask on the tube. I said, is that silly? He said, no, if you know anything about virology, that's pretty sensible. I'd do it myself, he said, but we do tend to look ridiculous. Well, now I know it's sensible. I think in kind of flu and cold season, the old hand gel routines and the hand washing routines and a bit of the old mask wearing, I think I'm prepared to tolerate being ridiculed. So I don't think any of that will happen. I think people will be as pretty much sensible as they've been right the way through this business, no matter how much people have kind of tried to capitalise on the idea that they've not been sensible. And I was, yeah, I mean, it's one because I've been quite surprised that actually initially when we were supposed to start wearing masks on the tube, I was quite struck that actually quite a lot of people didn't. But mm-hmm. let me, I, I did because it was waiting this morning, so I did get the tube from uh, Waterloo. And I looked around because I knew we were going to be having this conversation. Every single person had a mask on this morning. Uh, the same is true on the trains uh, when I come in. And so I do wonder whether actually just sort of society will just find its level. There will just be somehow without being told, we'll just work out the times when you do put one on and the times when you don't. And it will just, you know, I mean, yeah. the one thing I mean, just to give, to give you an example, Matt, um, you, you currently have to wear it on the platform, which is outside at Pinner, as well as when you get on the train. Uh, and uh, I certainly won't do that. I'm standing outside and my glasses are misting up. I'm surprised if I don't fall down the gap between the train <laughs> and the platform. But the but but I do it because it's you know the rule and everything. But on the train, I, I think David's right. I think that I think that I I will when it's crowded. Um and but I I think lots of people won't. I think it will be almost certainly a minority that do. Um, maybe in the short term it won't, and I think it'll take us a while to get back to old habits. But over time, I suspect, I suspect it uh, will become will be a minority, but not zero. And what about the sort of the broader question of um, the, part of the reason that there's sort of these two camps of like Boris Johnson, what the hell is he doing? Is he completely mad? We must stay indoors forever. Versus the um, I'm going to go and breathe all over everyone is the earliest opportunity. <laughs> if I can't lick a member of right said Fred's, that's my human right to do. Um, uh, it feels to me that we're not having... I mean, the part of the problem is what we really need is a, is a grown-up conversation about risk and death. And uh, maybe the one place not to have a grown-up conversation isn't on social media. But um, it, it, it seems as if the sort of absolutists are talking as if we're going to have zero COVID, zero cases, zero deaths. Uh, if only we just sit tight for a bit longer, uh, then it'll all be all right. And that's just that's just not realistic, is it? Well, uh, uh, there's only one reason. Sorry, David. No, it's not not realistic. It's not actually how most people are thinking about it. Whilst it is true that people would like a kind of degree of clarity because into the area of doubt creep all the kind of, am I doing the right thing? Am I under threat or not? And so on. And people people don't like that. But we are entering and we are in a period actually of what you might call ambiguity. Um, And that ambiguity is because... It's played around fairly fine margins of, let's say, how effective the vaccine is. If it's 97% effective against uh, 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 against COVID, the new variants of COVID, that's one thing. If it's 94%, 
uh, then that means rather more people will get it and rather more people will die. And then the question comes about what are the kind of minimal forms of uh, restraints that you would want in order to try and uh, cope with that. And so we're dealing still with a kind of period of uncertainty and trying to make our way through best guesses. And my feeling is that most people actually do, after all this time, understand that. But we are in the middle of the, the culture wars and people will culture war just about anything. <laughs> They'll culture war pets. They'll culture war... I mean, the, the, the two sides will actually kill each other and anybody in between, by the way, at the drop of a hat over any suit. It, 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 you know, it, 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 Brexit applied to everything. Um, woke culture or anti-woke culture applied to absolutely everything. And I, my, my instinct about this, I know what Danny feels... Uh, despite one of the headlines that uh, occupied the paper this week, is that increasingly people are going to get impatient with this uh, in this, inc this incredible battle that these two sides appear to be having for our souls and say, I don't really want any part of this. D Danny? Well, I'm, I'm going to be writing uh, partly about that this week. Um, and, uh, you know, you're right, David. I... I um, the only reason why I'm not writing some, uh, this particular column, and I'll tell you what it is in a second, is because I've written it several times already. We ought to have a clearer idea what the health costs are of continued lockdown. The people who are suggesting that we carry on locking down are doing that on the basis that it has no cost. I've always taken the idea that the costs of COVID um, spreading were so big in the past that, um, you know, we could probably muddle along without analysis of what the costs of lockdown were because they were bound to be smaller. Uh, but we've now reached the point where that's no longer the case. And I always knew that would happen. We are now making the case where the prime minister is having to choose about the how many deaths he's willing to risk. But he's making it's everyone suggesting that there's just sort of one choice between no deaths and however many deaths he's picked. That's not the case. There, there, there are real big costs in terms of the economy and in terms of health to lockdown. And it may not have been a problem. So it may not have been a problem until now because of the costs of COVID. But now we're so heavily vaccinated. It is a choice. And it's very frustrating that we're making that choice with only one piece of information that we need. Um, now, I'm inclined to trust that, that, that Chris Whitty's point, he basically said, we've reached the point where we're mainly delaying rather than avoiding deaths. Uh, and the judgment of some scientists is that we should keep going uh, with the policy of restrictions, but the judgment of others, and it was clearly his, is that we, we should um, move now because we've got the summer ahead of us. And what he's indicating is it's a difficult choice to make, um, but we should make it. I wish I was able to, I, I'm willing to trust his judgment. I wish I was able to make it myself a bit more clearly upon the basis, not just of Chris Whitty's instinct about what will happen with COVID, but what would also happen with lockdown. And that's a piece of information that hasn't been shared with us. And I've found that frustrating all the way along. It hasn't been a big public policy decision problem, but now it is. Now, I, I mean, let's move on, because I, I think I sort of owe you an apology, Danny, because I inadvertently, and this, I'm not sure this has ever happened before, I inadvertently said something which was at odds with something that you thought, which I don't think, uh, mm -hmm. um, it, which very rarely happens. But on, I don't know what it was, I think Friday, I tweeted that... Um, the, of all the daft takes about Batley and Spen, the daftest was the idea that it halted Boris Johnson's march and that 
um, uh, actually, you know, if the Tories are marching, even at this stage, that is mad. Uh, it should be the opposition on the march. And I, I hadn't read that you'd written exactly that, that one of the uh, takeaways from it was that it was uh, the Tories were, uh, the, the march had been halted. But it was, it was just interesting about the about narratives and whether the narrative was that the Tories were on the march, now they're not on the march, although I'm not sure that anything has happened before or since to suggest that Labour were on the march. So, first well, of all, we can't, go on, Daddy. Yeah, we can disagree with each other, and actually it's very No, we can't. To we must fight had... to the death. <laughs> it was very healthy to see what you thought, but actually we didn't quite disagree because what you were suggesting was that, Labour, was that this by-election hasn't halted anything, and I agree with that. Um, I just think this, this um, by-election... Keir Star, this violation is, should mainly be seen by Labour as a relief that it was not a disaster because it wasn't a particularly good result at all. Um, and um, it, what it, what one of the things it does indicate is that um, it may be the case, it only may be the case that the Conservative Party is no longer uh, doing what looked like it might it might be doing, which is continuing to hoover up these big votes for Brexit party or independent Brexit inclined candidates and thus in the red wall seats, not merely um, going, not, not merely staying still or sometimes going backwards. We're actually advancing. Well, in this by-election, insofar as you can tell anything from one by-election, the indication was they didn't eat up that vote and therefore um, they stayed static. And that was the one of the pieces um, that Keir Starmer can be relieved about. But I think we're, uh, where we do agree is um, it wasn't a spectacular result by any means. And when I was working for William Haig, and William Haig's written about this a little bit this morning, you know, we had some uh, results which were kind of mediocre, uh, but we were happy because they looked like victories. But really, we understood they weren't very good results for the stage we were in the Parliament and were probably indicating we were on course to lose. Uh, but we took what we could get. And I, I think that was pretty much the case with Batley and Spen. Uh, what do you think, uh, David? Who's right? Is it me or Danny? Fight, fight, fight. Uh, well, I think I, I think I think Danny should be careful next time he stands on the platform at Pinner, just in case you go on that <laughs> shield as well. Because um, he said he's been kind of feeling shaky. So you wait for his glasses to steam up and then off he goes. Um, uh, I, I, I think, as with football, we're suffering from a crisis of over-interpretation, really, which is um, Harry Kane doesn't score for a couple of matches. Harry Kane is in a kind of absolute disaster. Harry Kane scores... This could be the opening of the floodgates. Harry Kane scores again. See, we told you. Uh, it's all nonsense because it's all kind of dependent upon what kind of service they're for. And this is all nonsense as well, really. There was a narrative which was Keir Starmer's in dead trouble. He's going to go, etc. And Batley and Spen has completely destroyed that. In that sense, it's a very big result for Labour because it completely gets rid of that particular thing which was building. I was interested, by the way, in which, however, quite a lot of commentators having already bet their uh, uh, bet their farms on Labour's crisis, continued with the Labour crisis narrative, despite the by-election, etc., as if it hadn't happened. And I suppose, in a way, that argues that actually they weren't over-interpreting because they were sticking with their original over-interpretation instead of re-over-interpreting <laughs> uh, re and so on. Um, and I'm going to say this point again, and I know it's really boring. These are not usual times. You can't go by the usual rules. Anything that William Hague went through, with respect, Danny, doesn't really tell you that much about what's going on now because the pandemic has completely done for everything. 
I don't think that the Times has run a single edition in the last kind of, kind of four months that hasn't had Boris Johnson photographed in a vaccination centre in it. Um, whereas Keir Starmer struggles to get on anybody's things unless he's actually suffering a crisis uh, and so on. Now, we are going to edge out of that period. And I would say, I honestly do suggest this to people, wait another six months and then yeah. interpret. Uh, because yeah. these, have been, these have been the strangest of strange times. I, I would agree with you and actually go a bit further. It's not just that we're early on in the parliament um, and, and we've had the vaccine uh, bounce and all those things, all of which I think you're completely, you know, 100% correct about. Uh, I would additionally point out at some point, time for a change will visit the Conservative Party, just like it has every, you know, it is a golden rule. It always comes. The pendulum effect always works. It's been, the, the period has been extraordinary that it, uh, over the last uh, 10 or 15 years that it hasn't come. I think it will. Um, and I don't rule out at all that Labour will deprive the Conservative Party of its majority in the next election. I think winning a majority of its own seems unlikely. I think it'll face the problem when it gets close to an election that it'll be presenting people with quite a messy government if they get elected, and that could yeah. uh, mean that they don't. But nevertheless, time for you're quite right, David. You, you shouldn't overinterpret this as saying Labour can't win or whatever. But I would say uh, you certainly can't interpret it as anything other than a pretty, I mean, you can as a, a useful event because it stopped all this discussion, but it's it's a pretty ropey result in truth. <laughs> for the, the uh, you know, and 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 that does have to be stared at, and and I think it's partly because uh, for all sorts of reasons, both temporary, but I think also more than temporary, Keir Starmer doesn't dominate the scene in a way that I I thought he might actually. And I thought this might play to his strength, sort of presenting himself as the sort of person who can become prime minister. And it must have struck you, David, that that for all his reasonableness, that attribute it, it hasn't come through as clearly as you would have. Well, it's also you know, as I anticipated. Is, is that not the case? He's not a film star. Um, uh, and that is a bit of a problem, which is that he doesn't instantly he starts opening his mouth. He doesn't make you lean into him. Yeah. That is abs that, that's absolutely true. There are there is a quality. Blair had it. Uh, Thatcher, to a certain extent, had it in a kind of different way, which is uh, you know, and and for and, and in the completely malign sense, Trump had it. Trump had it. Has it in spades, which is you go towards him when he speaks. When Keir speaks, you lean outwards a bit. It's a very strange, and and, and it feels kind of unfair. And it may be the experience of some success would change that and so on. But you fear that really, actually, his best position in a team is central defence. Yeah. Well, well, I'm afraid we're going to have to lean out of listening to both of you, but only because we've <laughs> run out of time and not because it wasn't, uh, it wasn't fascinating. Danny Fickelstein and David Ivanovich there. And, of course, you can read The Times every week. Danny on a Wednesday, David on a Thursday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is The Politics of Petrol. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, when was the last time you filled up? First, let's actually find, let's go big picture. What is driving uh, this rise in the price of oil? Let's speak to Paul Stevens, distinguished fellow at Chatham House and an expert on the economics of oil. Morning, Paul. Good morning. So um, let's go right, let's go, you know, talk proper nuts and bolts. Uh, right back to the beginning, the price of who decides the price of oil? Uh, basically, the marketplace. And the marketplace is populated by a large number of excitable 23-year-olds in red braces 
Um, <laughs> so this explains why it can get so volatile. They are the worst. And um, uh, and so this is literally sort of barrels of oil being traded on the on the market. Yeah, it's, I mean, sometimes it's pieces of paper with promises to pay or deliver that are traded. But you also get a physical market as well, where people actually exchange barrels of oil. And what has been happening to uh, oil prices in the past sort of 12, 18 months? What impact did the uh, did the pandemic have? The pandemic had a huge impact, largely because um, oil demand collapsed. And as a result of that, prices collapsed. Indeed, at one point uh, I- I last year, um, the price of oil in the United States went negative. In other words, they had to pay people to take it away. Uh, since then, as the pandemic, I was going to say the pandemic has retreated, but it hasn't. But as demand has started to come back, then prices have started to creep up again. And indeed, in the last week or so, they've been at their highest level since about 2018. Um, and so, they, so that's crept back up. And then what is there a direct correlation between the, um, uh, the, pr- the price of a barrel of oil and what we pay at the pumps? Is it one of those things that is the price of oil shoots up, the price of the pumps shoots up, and then the price of oil comes down quickly and the price of the pumps comes down quite slowly? There is an element of of sort of asymmetric response, if you like, but it's worth remembering that in in the United Kingdom, for example, when you go and fill up your car, um, about two thirds of that goes to the UK government in tax. Uh, The actual price of oil uh, accounts for only about less than a third of the price of the gasoline. And and I suppose that's been one of the big debates, isn't it? Is the uh, the amount of tax and fuel duty that the government puts on it, and that actually makes up a bigger uh, proportion. What's what's the sort of aside from uh, <laughs> uh, the fact they're all twenty three and wear red braces? What's the long term uh, sort of forecast for oil? If the entire globe, presumably, it is forecast to shift more towards electric cars, will that have an impact on the oil price? It certainly will. It's not so much electric vehicles, because that's only part of the demand for oil. But we are in the middle of an energy transition, a move away from hydrocarbon molecules towards electrons. And this will have a very significant impact uh, on the demand for oil, ultimately. And indeed, there is a view now that I hold and also other people like BP hold, that we've reached so-called peak oil. In other words, world oil demand is now at the maximum it's ever going to be, and therefore it's downhill from here on in. Um, how fast downhill depends on the speed of the transition. Well, we, 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 we wait to see uh, um, what actually happens there. Paul Stevens, distinguished fellow at Chatham House, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, good to speak to Paul uh, there. Do let me know what um, you think about uh, this. Somebody's texted in, no name on this. I want to get. I want to get out of my car, but it's so difficult. The cost of trains are insane. Where I live, I don't have a great bus network. I want to go electric, but the cars are so expensive. So what's the government doing? They don't do anything to enable us. So keep your thoughts coming in. Eight seven trouble two. Start your message with the word times. So there's a bit. It's the global picture we got from Paul. Exactly how oil prices feed through to the pumps. 
But then what's going on at the pumps and how much do prices vary from different parts of the country, maybe on different roads even. Earlier on, I spoke to Simon Williams. He's the RAC's fuel spokesman. And I asked him about how much the price of petrol varies at different retailers. The price of petrol will vary uh, quite considerably. There's uh, somewhat of a postcode lottery with uh, fuel. Um, but generally, um, fuel will be cheaper um, when there's a presence of a supermarket. Yeah, and that would also be better if there was one or two supermarkets and several retailers, so there's a bit of competition. Um, generally, um, supermarket fuel is around 3 to 4p a litre cheaper than uh, fuel bought elsewhere, although there are some independent retailers that do really pride themselves on having a good price and do give the supermarkets a run for their money. So if that's the average, where's the, where's the sort of highest and lowest uh, petrol that people could be buying right now? Motorway fuel will clearly be the most expensive, but people don't tend to do a complete fill up there. It tends to be much, uh, something much more akin to what we call a splash and dash. Um, and then filling <laughs> up elsewhere. That's a good term. Somewhere more that's the, oh, blimey, I need petrol. I'll just put in £10 of this phenomenally expensive uh, motorway petrol. Yeah, it's also good to make sure you, when you're doing a longer journey, you know you're going to need to fill up at some point to research in advance where you could do that, which uh, might be a little bit more affordable. Um, and so how, what's, the, what's the highest you've, you're seeing at the moment? Um, it's, it's very difficult to talk about. We don't tend to talk about individual highest prices. Um, you know, we know that we are in a situation where we've had rising fuel prices for eight months in a row. As you said, 18p a litre has been added. That's, um, that's added £10 a litre to the cost of filling up an average 55-litre family car with petrol or diesel. Uh, since the beginning of November last year. Uh, and it looks like we're heading for probably nine months of rises as well. Uh, things aren't looking good this month. Um, but we are still some way off the all-time highs of April 2012 when petrol reached 142 a litre and diesel 148. What, what, uh, we really what hope drove those high... doesn't get... Yeah, what drove those high prices back in uh, um, 2012? The oil price. Um, and of course, um, the all-time high uh, oil price is around $115 a barrel. But of course, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, when there was no demand for oil at all, oil fell to um, $13 a barrel. And now if we cast our minds back to 2016, when we had uh, commonly available uh, petrol and diesel at £1 a litre, um, oil fell to $26 a barrel. And that was due to... Um, OPEC, the organisation of the petroleum exporting countries, are overproducing oil uh, with a view to stopping America uh, gaining market share from fracking. Now, that was you know, something we never thought we'd see. But of course, at that time, we were all driving. But during the beginning of the pandemic, no one was moving. So no one really benefited, or not many people benefited from the lower oil price then. And what are, what are the long-term prospects? Do you think that it, it might continue to rise for a couple of months? I mean, how high do you think it might go this time? Do you think we will see 2012 levels? It's very, very difficult to predict. Uh, oil prices are extremely volatile. And, of course, what's happening now is that uh, producers are trying to balance the market and demand is uh, growing and, at the moment, uh, is outstripping supply. But, of course, you know, various countries around the world are at different stages of uh, vaccination rollouts and... Uh, you know, the Delta variants you know, taking a hold. So it's it's quite hard for them you know, to work out exactly how much is needed. But I think on the whole, they're, uh, they're kind of making the prices go up. But they're all, yeah, they, they, things could change. And how big an impact might uh, the move to some forms of hybrid? Well, I mean, clearly lots of people will 
still been going to work throughout the pandemic. Uh, some people will be going back to work, you know, back to their place of work full time. But if there are people who used to drive to work five days a week, maybe be doing it a couple of days a week. How big an impact would that ultimately have, do you think, on the on the number of cars that are on the road and the amount of petrol that we buy? It clearly could have uh, an impact on traffic. I don't think uh, ultimately, I think it probably won't um, harm uh, overall petrol and diesel sales that much. Because um, I think what will happen from certainly from research we carried out, I think people will actually end up doing more uh, leisure driving. They perhaps may not be going to the office um, on a couple of days a week, but they'll probably make up for it driving elsewhere. So we might see uh, differences in traffic at different times of day. The rush hour may not be quite as bad, but government statistics also show that we're uh, pretty much back to the level of traffic we had just prior to the pandemic in um, February 2012. And looking ahead, obviously, there's a there's a move to get everyone to go uh, electric. You know, some people getting hybrid cars, others going full blown electric. What uh, impact will uh, right? Do you think that this rise in uh, petrol prices might encourage more people to make that switch, or does it have to go to sort of two pounds a litre before that becomes a real consideration? Um, I think the rising prices will make some people think. Obviously, the 2030 date is set now for the end of the sale of um, new petrol and diesel cars, um, and uh, it is definitely an incentive to um, switch to electric. If you think about driving, you know, someone who drives 10,000 miles a year, uh, at the average price of 132 for petrol a litre, you could be saving around £1,500. Um, that's probably based on an MPG of about 40 miles to the gallon. Um, that makes, you know, switching to electric look pretty attractive because you won't, you know, electricity is cheap. Um, and so much so that we, we've, um, we've actually introduced... Um, a leasing offer on our website to lease an EV and you can get into an EV for as little as £230 a month, um, which is, you know, makes um, electric motoring seem far more appealing than uh, internal combustion engine motoring. That was uh, uh, Simon Williams from the RAC uh, talking us through what's happening at, at the pumps. Uh, up next, we're going to look at the politics of petrol. And uh, for years, Conservative chancellors, successive Conservative chancellors have frozen fuel duty. But if they want us all to go electric, maybe they should hike it up. We'll talk that next here on Times Radio. This is Matt Jolly on Times Radio in association with GoDaddy, providing the help and tools you need to grow your business online. Mariella Frostrup, this afternoon from one on Times Radio. We've discussed at length the future of the workplace in the post-pandemic world. But what about how the job market is changing? What will be the professions of the future? Just how radical a change are we in for? 2pm we're joined by Anthony Gormley, the artist whose sculptures are recognised across the world, including his 200-tonne Angel of the North. And we also speak with Candace Braithwaite, who took the country by storm with her first book, I'm Not Your Baby Mother, and returns with a fearless collection of essays on all the things she wishes she'd been told when she was young. That would be a massive tome if it was me. Mariella Frostrup, this afternoon from 1 on Times Radio. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with GoDaddy. Supporting the small business champions behind Team GB at the Tokyo Olympic Games. Yeah, good morning. We're talking petrol are in the big thing uh, today. After petrol prices, according to the RAC, the average uh, litre of unloaded petrol is now 132.19p. That's the highest price in nearly eight years. Prices up 20% on uh, this time last year. Well, government taxes, fuel duty and VAT already make up about two-thirds of the overall cost of both petrol and diesel. 
And despite the increase in prices, the government remains under pressure to increase fuel duty to try to limit the number of cars on the road and hit its environmental goals. Well, uh, the Times, uh, a couple of days ago, reported that ministers have drawn up radical plans to reduce carbon emissions, which would increase the cost of running a car by hundreds of pounds a year. The government plans to introduce a carbon reduction scheme that will put up the cost of gas and petrol as part of an attempt to decarbonise the economy. Under the plans, the average cost of running a petrol car could rise by more than £100 a year. Uh, according to the RAC, a driver covering 10,000 miles a year spends £1,500 on petrol. Well, the Times have been told that Boris Johnson does not want to include petrol in the scheme amid concerns that it would penalise motorists. He, like his predecessors, knows the political cost of targeting drivers. There is a reason why chancellors for more than a decade have repeatedly promised that fuel duty would be frozen. We will now stop any rise in fuel duty this August and freeze it for the rest of the year. And I will, Mr Deputy Speaker, once again cancel the fuel duty rise for both petrol and diesel that is scheduled for April. I'm not prepared to increase the cost of a tank of fuel. So the planned increase in fuel duty is also cancelled. George Osborne, Philip Hammond and Rishi Sunak set to the music of Frozen there. You don't get that anywhere else, do you? Possibly for good reason. But time and again, they've frozen planned rises in fuel duty. Uh, But maybe the mood in government is changing. Uh, If they did uh, act to put up the price of driving, what impact would that have? Let's speak to Douglas McWilliams. Executive Deputy Chairman at the Centre for Economics and Business Research. Morning, Douglas. Good morning. So talk us through the economics of this uh, and the impact of rising fuel prices up to something like 20% in recent months. What impact would that have on the economy even before the government starts looking at potentially pushing up the the cost of driving? Well, the rise in fuel prices on its own uh, takes out about 1% of GDP growth from the economy, but the economy is growing pretty quickly at the moment. So that's probably not the Chancellor's biggest concern. I think what probably would be his concern is that um, fuel prices are paid much more by people outside London, 92% outside London, and much more by relatively poorer people. The poorest 10% of motorists pay eight, spend 8% of their income on uh, fuel whereas the richest only spend 4%. So I think that that would be the sort of thing that would concern the Chancellor. And is that why, because I'll be honest, even when I was uh, discussing it um, uh, earlier on with, with colleagues, and they said, why are you doing that? And I said, because I know, grew up on the Somerset levels, I live in Hampshire, you know, everybody drives, everyone talks about, have you seen the price of petrol? But because, bluntly, uh, most people in London do not drive, uh, there's not a national conversation about this in a way that if uh, if if train fares or tube fares went up by 20% in 12 months, it probably would be all over the front pages. Yeah, I think that's true. I think also motorists feel slightly that they are paying the bulk of the decarbonisation efforts. I mean, the ONS statistics say that uh, the uh, that motorists are paying 68% of all climate change taxes, whereas they only account for between 15 and 20%, depending which measure you use, of emissions. And so there's a feeling that it's not quite fair. And it's the people who live outside London and the people who are poor and not necessarily very articulate are the ones who are getting it in the neck. 
I mean, I don't frankly mind paying a bit extra because, you know, I think I can afford it. But there are plenty of people who can't afford it. And they seem to be the ones who are getting most upset about us. And I suppose the thing is that if you're uh, if you live in a rural or semi-rural area, uh, and you need your car to get to work. Uh, the government could keep putting it all up and keep saying you've got to pay more of your carbon, you know, your contributions towards uh, our carbon carbon change. It's not going to make any difference um, unless it's, it becomes so cripplingly expensive that, that actually the idea of buying a hybrid or an electric car uh, makes you start thinking about making the switch. Yeah, and of course the problem is that uh, there isn't still a very good second-hand market for uh, hybrid and electric cars, and they're still fairly expensive. So roughly half the population could, if they really wanted to, substitute their current spending on petrol or diesel cars for electric or, in some cases, hybrid ones. But the other half would have to pay quite a lot more if they want to get a, 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 an electric car compared with what they're spending at the moment. But yeah, this is sort of the initial outlay. And the government said that uh, it's going to um, uh, the ban on the sale of pure internal combustion engines uh, is got, uh, that ban's going to come into force now in 2030. New hybrid cars will still be allowed to be sold until 2035. So we're some way off that sort of. It's going to be a while, isn't it, before you, you know electric uh, cars of one sort or another dominate on our roads. The hope is that by then the technology has improved and the technology needs to improve in a number of areas. First of all, to bring down the price. Secondly, to speed up charging times, because charging times at the moment mean that if you're trying to do something and your car needs to be charged, it's not much use to you. And the third thing that's required at the same time is um, much, uh, uh, much more efficient batteries that are smaller, put on less weight, etc. If you can do those things together and bring down the cost, it starts to become a much more attractive proposition. Well, we'll see how, how, uh, how that all pans out. Uh, really good to speak to you. Douglas McWilliams there from the Centre for Economics and Business Research. Let's now talk to uh, Katerina Brandmeier, uh, the Head of Climate Policy at the Green Alliance. Good morning, Katerina. Good morning. So what would you like to see happen? Uh, in terms of, in a sort of pure green sense, it would make sense, wouldn't it, for the government to, to really ratchet up fuel duty? So I would start by saying that uh, there are significant benefits in, from transitioning to a clean and more modern transport systems, including the health benefits that can arise from uh, greater uh, sort of active uh, travel, so walking and cycling, the job creation in new low carbon industries for EV manufacturing, charging infrastructure deployment and public transport expansion, as well as lower congestion and air quality. And, but it, what is crucial in, in sort of moving to that uh, future transport system is that we put equity at the center of it. Uh, and the way that obviously government designs policy and taxation plays a vital role in ensuring that all parts of society and all parts of the country can benefit from those, uh, from that future uh, and during the transition. And it's in that context, it's important to recognize that taxation plays an important role, but it's on the one hand, it needs to be well designed to avoid those least able to pay to be sort of be disproportionately impacted. And on the other hand, taxation alone cannot solve the problem. And it must be complemented by a set of supportive measures that also allow people to switch to cleaner alternatives. And this means making sure that people have access to public transport, that they can walk and cycle if they want to. And they, it's also easier for them to switch to electric vehicles. Uh, and I think that is therefore vital that government, as it provides sort of things about changing taxation in the transport system, it looks at this and it sets out a comprehensive package of measures uh, to make sure that 
sort of all all of these different aspects around equity are really considered and embedded in the system. And what about the point that Douglas was just making? That at the moment, uh, the amount of uh, money that's paid by drivers, uh, it, the, the the tax, the VAT, the um, the, the carbon contributions, um, far actually is, as a proportion of the amount of money they're giving to the government, far outweighs the, the, the contribution to carbon emissions. And it's quite often poorer people especially who are uh, are forking out the most does the government sort of need to go almost go back to square one instead of this sort of you know annual ritual of Tory MP saying don't put up fuel duty and the Chancellor says oh, so I'm fine I'll freeze it again for another year do we need to go back right back to square one and completely rethink tax uh, transport taxes right across the board so that uh, there is a proper incentive you know people are incentivized to go green rather than just penalized for not being able to so I think it's first worth pointing out that there is it's 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 true that there is an uneven sort of a, um, carbon price across the economy, and I think it would be definitely desirable for government to take a much more comprehensive approach to make sure that the entire tax system is first of all aligned to support growth, uh, economic growth towards uh, a clean economy, uh, and making sure the tax system is also designed to overall be a sort of a system that is not penalizing, uh, that it's a fair system and it's not penalizing those least able to pay. And I should say that uh, research the Green Alliance has conducted uh, with Britain Thinks shows that people are supportive of a tax system that helps tackle climate change. Uh, and these findings are also backed up by recommendations by the recent um, UK Climate Assembly, with, which shows that over 80% of people are supportive of green taxes on producers, products and services. But what is vital is make sure that taxation is designed well to sort of mitigate and minimize, sort of minimize and, and mitigate where possible the impacts of those disabled to pay and instead sort of targets eventually those that instead are in the wealthy brackets. But on the other hand, that we do put in place, we don't rely just on taxation and we do put in place a whole set of supportive measures to make sure that everyone, uh, and particularly those disabled to pay, have uh, access to cleaner alternatives. Well, it's an interesting debate, and I'm, yeah, I'm sure it's one that the government is going to have to grapple with sooner rather than later. Katarina uh, Branmer uh, from uh, Green Alliance, thanks so much for joining us on uh, Times Radio. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs> 